escaped sapiens. What do we know about the network of connections in the human brain? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Deanna Barch, who's a professor of psychological and brain sciences, psychiatry, and radiology at Washington University. Deanna is a key researcher on the Human Connectome Project, which aims to build a network map of the anatomical and functional connectivity of the human brain to unprecedented precision. We discuss the extent to which the wiring of the human brain is determined by biology and how much is set by experience and environment. What is the impact of stress and trauma on developing brains, and will we ever have the tools to read memories and predict behavior? Before starting, I should mention, as is tradition, I had some small issues with the camera work. So those viewers listening in video format will notice some small sections of Deanna's footage are missing. But the sound is good and the discussion is fascinating. I really enjoyed this one. I hope you do too. Deanna Birch, welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. So I've been really looking forward to speaking with you because I want to get a better idea for how the physical structure of our brains uh, re- re- corresponds to the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, and the memories that we're, a- that we're able to have. Uh, and also, you know, to what extent the structure is due to genetics, due to the environment, due to our experiences. And so let me start by asking you, how complete is our map of the brain? To, you know, what is the resolution that we are able to map it to, both structurally and functionally, just an overview? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, it's certainly not yet complete. Um, And in particular, I would say it's not yet complete because we don't have great, I'll call them connecting maps, meaning that, you know, we're creating maps of the brain at different scales, right? So my map, the, the kind of the scale that I work with is more of a macro scale where we're thinking about regions in the brain that, you know, coordinate and work together to support different aspects of thinking and emotion and cognition. There are people that are looking at, uh, you know, maps within a region where you're looking at, you know, neurons and cells and, you know, synapses that connect things together and people looking at even smaller scales, looking at, you know, receptors and, you know, very minute aspects of cellular circuits down to people doing maps within cells, right? So, you know, we we are developing increasingly sophisticated maps at those different levels. What I think we don't yet have is the connections between those levels. Mm -hmm. How do those different levels kind of scale up and scale down to give rise to human thought and behavior and, you know, emotion and those sorts of things. So I think that's going to be our next challenge, you know, uh, is to really think about, okay, how do the, you know, integration of different you know, proteins and things within a cell give rise to cell assemblies and the connections among them. And how do those give rise to local circuits and how do the local circuits really determine these larger scale circuits? Um, And where do disruptions at one scale propagate up or propagate down to lead to challenges in emotion and cognition and, you know, any of the things that we consider make us human? So in terms of, but so the modeling that you have done, just to get a picture of sort of the numbers, is it sort of at the millimeter scale? And, and right. how well, it depends. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Uh, well, it depends on who, who you're talking about, right? So like, for me, it's really at the sort of millimeter scale, right? Um, which is pretty big when you think of brain stuff, right? You know, so the the kind of the level of analysis that I look at with 
uh, techniques like functional MRI or structural MRI, you know, are really at the level of, you know, um, millimeters, brain regions, and, and that's going to contain, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of, mm-hmm. you know, cells and other things. So I still consider what I work at as a fairly macro scale mm-hmm. compared to, you know, what people have been able to do, say, in animal models where they can go in at, you know, a much, much, you know, uh, finer resolution to look at, you know, I, even I, I think of things like, um, you know, what's the worm? I can't remember the name of the worm that they've been able to like map its entire brain. C. elegans, I think um, it's called. Yeah, C. elegans, right? Like that's at a much more micro scale than we are anywhere close to yet in terms of humans, although there are ambitious people who are trying to do that. Is the reason why, so is it the, the techniques that are used in those animal models, are they too invasive to use on humans or what, what's the reasoning there? That's the, that is really the primary thing. I mean, we have um, just amazing, mind-blowing technologies that can be used in animals that uh, I don't know that we'll ever be able to use in humans because they're invasive, right? Like we can go in with chemogenics and optogenetics and be able to do things where we turn you know, different cell types on and off and receptors on different cell types. And you can't do that in a human at all because we don't know kind of the safety in a human, right? Um, We also don't have technology, you know, a lot of the technologies involve, you know, for animal use involve, you know, uh, you know, things like, you know, anesthetizing the animal for long periods of time. You're not going to do that safely in a human. It requires, you know, radiation or other things that you're not going to do safely in humans. So the technologies, while they are getting better in humans, the technologies that we have available to safely study healthy humans are limited in their scale and resolution, you know, because our, our primary concern with humans is always going to be safety and, you know, do no harm in humans. You mentioned something there that sort of piqued my interest. So do we, you mentioned turning off parts. Do we have anesthetics that can turn off certain regions of the brain so we can see what happens when a region of the brain gets switched off safely in humans? No. No, we don't. No, no, that would be a wonderful thing. I mean, the closest you can get in humans really is um, with, stimulation techniques. So there are uh, techniques like transcranial magnetic stimulation. There's also two other techniques, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation and transcranial alternating current stimulation, where in theory, there are some protocols that you can do that are called inactivation protocols that um, uh, can safely sort of temporarily reduce the activity of a brain region. Um, they're not super focal because they're all things that we have to apply on the scalp. And so, you know, the, the focality of the area that you can target is, is still not super tiny. That's probably the, really the closest we can get safely in humans. In animals, there are certainly all kinds of things that you could do much more evasive, invasively that can inactivate whole regions, either temporarily or permanently, or even again, um, with newer technologies, you know, with optogenetics and chemogenetics that you can do like single, you know, transmitter, neurotransmitter types or receptor types and those kinds of things. But none of that is available for humans mm-hmm. yet safely. Okay. So just to get an image of the work that you're doing, it's not that, um, you know, the millimeter scale is sufficient for modeling consciousness. It's just, that's the limitation of the technology you're using for imaging. 
Yeah. I mean, and I would say that, you know, what human, I, I'll say human researchers, you know, one of the things that they try to do is to try to look at those other levels sort of more in silico, right? In the sense of like, that's, I think, where computational neuroscience and computational approaches that um, try to create sort of biologically realistic models of how the brain might work by taking information that's being generated in sort of more invasive animal models about finer grain resolution and using that to try to predict, mm-hmm. you know, function, structure, connectivity at this more macro scale in humans as a way to bridge until we have that information at, in humans at that level. If, if we are able to eventually create safe technologies that would allow for that. You mentioned earlier that there's structural and then functional imaging. What, what's the difference mm-hmm. there? Well, so, um, so structural imaging gets more at um, sort of the shape and size of brain regions. So there mm-hmm. are techniques that you can use to look at what we call gray matter in the brain, which is really where the neurons live. And we can look at the shape and size of different brain regions. So I'll just give you like a super concrete example. Um, The hippocampus is a subcortical brain region. You know, we have techniques that we can use as early as, you know, in uh, birth, really now we can even do um, in utero, where we can measure the shape and the size of the hippocampus or parts of the prefrontal cortex. Um, We have things that can measure uh, white matter tracts in the brain, which are the longer fibers that connect brain regions or the synapses that connect, um, you know, neurons. But those are more like, again, the shape and size volume of the brain. By function, I mean uh, techniques that let you look at when brain areas are active. Um, and those techniques vary in terms of how direct they are, in terms of like directly measuring neuronal firing um, to less direct. So like I use a lot of what's called functional magnetic resonance imaging, and I use a technique called bold or blood oxygen level dependent imaging. And that is an indirect measure of brain activity because we're measuring the blood flow response that occurs in reaction to neurons firing. Hmm. Um, So it's sort of a, you know, a secondary indirect measure. It has a lot of great properties. It has good spatial resolution. It's very safe and non-invasive. You can contrast that with something like EEG or electroencephalography or, or MEG, which is magnetoencephalography, which is a more direct measure of neuronal activity, but with um, often less spatial resolution than you can get Mm -hmm. with the fMRI. So like EEG, which you measure on the scalp is electrical activity on the scalp is a direct measure of electrical activity of neurons doing their thing, right? Whether that's neurons firing action potentials or local field potentials that are arising out of sort of intercommunication among neurons, but you can't easily isolate the, exact source of the activity with EEG and the way you can with fMRI, but fMRI is a more indirect measure. One thing that I've never really, well, that I'd love to understand is, you know, when you, when you look at these different brain regions, are they distinguished purely by their activity? As in like, I'm thinking I'm doing some language processing or some high level mathematical thinking, and then this region, my brain is switched on. Or, or is it the case that when you look in and you, you look at the actual structure of these regions, they're structurally different? Both. So um, there are different ways of mapping or kind of parcelating the brain. 
based on different properties and they they all have some importance. So, you know, the kind of the first maps of the human brain were really based more on different sort of structural differences, different cell types, different organization, um, you know, things that, you know, were sort of more, I, I consider them more the structural properties of the brain, right? Um, and, you know, there are, you know, old maps of the brain, like there's a, a, a map we use called the Brodman's area that was based on like one old French lady <laughs> uh, who donated her brain to science or they took her brain, I'm not sure which. Um, and that is really different ways of kind of chunking up the brain based on some differences in what they call cytoarchitectonic properties, right? Cell types and laminar organization and those sorts of things. Um, and that's a really, I mean, we've gotten a lot of important information from that kind of map of the brain, but now we also understand maps of the brain in terms of different kinds of functional properties and they can be of different types. So one functional property would be, you know, okay, I ask you to do different things and I'm measuring brain activity. What parts of the brain light up when I ask you to do language or when I show you faces or when I ask you to do challenging cognitive tasks, right? So that's more about, you know, brain regions and networks of brain regions that activate in response to particular you know, cognitive emotional challenges. We're also learning a lot though about mapping the brain in terms of functional connections. So you can also think about, and by, and what I mean by that is if I have you get in my scanner and lay quietly and just look at a cross, there is what appears to be spontaneous fluctuations in bold response in the brain that we can measure over time. So it can create a time series of spontaneous fluctuations and bold response. Um, I won't call it brain activity again because it's an indirect measure. And if you look across the brain, you can see that some brain regions show the same patterns of fluctuation over time. So they seem to be correlated in their activity. And if you kind of take a step back and you know correlate all the possible mm. you know chunks of the brain together, you start to see that there are brain regions that you can identify in terms of the homogeneity or similarity of the sort of different, I call them voxels of the brain. Um, you know, so you might have a brain region that you say, okay, I'm going to call that a region because all of the parts of that region seem to show similar patterns of this functional, you know, spontaneous huh. functional activity over time. And its pattern is somewhat dissociable from a brain region next to it. And you can look at this at scales, right? So you can look at it in terms of a single brain region, and then you can say, okay, are there brain regions that seem to have more similar patterns to each other than the other brain regions? Do they form networks? You know, how consistent are those networks across people, over time, across development? Mm -hmm. Do those networks map on to, um, you know, kind of similarity in response to different cognitive challenges? So that's another way that you can think about um, identifying sort of maps in the brain. So it's like, in some sense, doing like factor analysis on the brain or something like this. You you <laughs> see that bit, yeah. you you see that you know these two regions are always fluctuating together. So I can somehow associate yeah. them to get. Okay, I, I, yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense actually. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. One th one thing that I want to understand a bit better, you know, when I think about the way that the brain functions and sort of compare it to computers, you know, with a computer, you have some physical architecture that you set up and then you switch the thing on. And what you're concerned with is, you know, the, the state of that architecture, whereas 
as far as I understand in the human brain, you've got another mechanism, which is that your brain is malleable and that connections can form over time. And so I want to, I want to understand a little bit better how these two uh, sort of modalities, the state and, and the actual physical structure interact with each other. And so I guess, you know, how similar are different people's brains? You know, I, I, I imagine if we talk back uh, about sea elegans, I imagine if you, or simple insects, I imagine they all have fairly similar structures. But when you, you look at humans, can you, for example, or maybe in the future, or, or, do you think we'll be able to distinguish, say, a mathematician or a musician from a boxer or a soccer player or something like this? Yeah. Okay. So that's a lot of questions there. So um, the short answer on the last question is we definitely cannot do that now at, at the level of individual inference. And what I mean by that is I can't put someone in the scanner and people ask me to do this all the time. And, and, and at that individual level of a, of a generally healthy person, right? I think it's very different if we're talking about someone who had like a massive stroke or something, right? But like, if I just, you know, take, you know, Jane Doe off the street and stick her in the scanner, I can't look at her brain and say, oh, this person's a mathematician or a musician, right? Like, mm -hmm. we just don't have the level of accuracy and prediction to be able to say that. Um, I think at the, at, at like larger group levels, right? Like if you took a large group of musicians versus a large group of mathematicians, there probably are, you know, some interesting differences among either brain structure or brain function. It's, it is, um, that is going to be a common, we know that that's going to be a combination of genes and experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like we pretty much anything about humans is a combination of genes and experience, right? Like genes influence everything and experience influence everything, right? So there's, you know, very little that is solely genetic and very little that is solely environmental. Although the degree to which genetics or environment kind of predominate can depend on a lot of different factors, right? You know, so, you know, if you take extreme adversity, right, the environment may drive things and override individual differences due to genetics, right? Um, whereas in, in some cases, you know, optimal environments allow genetic variation to express themselves more, right? But there's very little that we can say is only genetics or only environment. Um, you know, and there's all kinds of interesting research showing that, um, you know, yes, genetics can set things up. There are probably uh, some really core things that are very similar across humans, right? But then the experiences that people have can drive plasticity in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. And how much plastic, and this, this is very much an ongoing area of research interest, how much plasticity are there critical windows where, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over the years about childhood as being sort of a critical period for plasticity in some domains, but there's intriguing evidence that plasticity can continue in certain domains, at least across the life. There are people studying means of sort of like reopening plasticity windows as a means to try to help, you know, there's a guy to Cal Hench at Harvard who's really interested in the role that uh, like SSRIs play in reopening plasticity windows potentially as a means of treating, you know, mental health challenges. So, you know, we do know there's plasticity. There's really intriguing animal research showing how environments change really fundamental aspects like methylation of genes and all kinds of things. 
There's some intriguing research in humans suggesting that some of the similar things are occurring in humans. My research is particularly focused on childhood adversity mm-hmm. and supports. And so I know the most about that area. And there's a lot of homology across the animal and the human models in terms of the way that things like family environment, you know, uh, uh, kind of environmental enrichment, nutrition, you know, support, uh, modify brain structure and function um, in ways that are clearly due to the environment. Um, But we don't have a sense of the limits yet. And we don't have Mm -hmm. a great sense of how much we can harness, better harness plasticity in support of like treatment or prevention of negative outcomes. I want to I want to ask you about well, specifically about your research on stress and uh, how that impacts success and these sort of, sort of things later on in life. But uh, actually, uh, can I just ask quickly? There's a few things I want to ask quickly more more generally uh, before jumping into that, if that's okay. The sure. um, so you, you just made me curious. You you mentioned so SSRIs maybe able to turn back plastic, you know, turn on plasticity. Maybe. That's the theory. That's the theory. Takao so so I could do, yeah. I could learn language like a child or something if I. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think he's trying to go. Well, I don't know. I haven't talked to him about this recently, so I don't know how, <laughs> how extreme, but I think it's more that he's been interested in things like SSRI, like understanding why antidepressants work. Right. And, and is it the case that, you know, if SSRIs, for example, this is just an example, you know, kind of turn back on some plasticity mechanisms can you then use it as an opportunity to say like better engage? I think this is the way I think of it is like, can you then uh, have more efficacious like cognitive behavioral treatment, right? Where you're sort of like reshaping thought patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe have been ingrained across the course of life and kind of get, you know, a hard, I, I won't say hardwired. Well, I'll say hardwired, right? Like, you know, if experiences sort of get instantiated in the brain through, you know, um, you know, your kind of LTP, long-term potential, heavy and learning mechanisms, um, that's overly simplifying things. But, you know, and then you kind of get stiff and you, it's hard to change those. I think his ideas are around, well, can things like SSRIs loosen up that plasticity a little bit so that you can better engage in treatments that might help alleviate depression or anxiety? I don't know whether he's thinking about it in terms of big things like, you know, can you do much better language learning if you had, you know, approaches that would reopen what are thought to be sort of critical periods of learning like language, right, which is everybody's always interested in that because there's so much data that little kids learn languages so easily and it's often harder for adults and the hypothesis has been that there are critical periods of plasticity that close and if you don't sort of get in on the getting while it's good, you're not going to be able to benefit later in life and um, whether you could harness some of those things to do that, that certainly is an area of research right now. So do you have uh, some level of understanding of how, so when I learn something, if, if I do some task in some repetitive way or I, I, I practice at something, how does my brain function in terms of learning in comparison to a child? I still make, I'm, I'm guessing I make uh, new connections in the morphology or, or the geometry of my brain changes, but just not at the same rate or not to the same extent or. Right. Well, this is less my area of expertise. So I, I, I do, I'm sure somebody has looked like really specifically at like the speed of LTP and heavy and learning in like little mice babies versus older mice. Right. Because that's the, that's where you could study that kind of thing. My understanding 
um, is that, you know, one of the things in particular that people have looked at is neurogenesis and that, um, that there seems to be, you know, more robust neurogenesis earlier in life. And so neurogenesis is part of what's driving that kind of learning because you're sprouting new connections among brain regions and you're sort of harnessing them um, and that that may be less um, robust later in life, right? And whether it's, um, whether it's magnitude or speed, I don't know, right? Like meaning, I don't know whether it's like, um, adults just have to study something way longer in order for that to accomplish it? Or is it just never going to be as robust as you see in younger kids? Um, you know, there's, I think for a long time, people thought neurogenesis didn't happen in adults at all. I think there's now evidence that neurogenesis can occur under at least certain circumstances and at least in certain brain regions. Um, and I, I think they're, I think this is a bit more complicated because I don't know that it's just, so I also think of this from a computational perspective, meaning if you look at computational models of learning, um, there's two things we have to worry about, right? Which is, you know, how, how do you form the connections um, and create new representations? But then also, how do you not interfere with existing rep representations, right? So, um, and if you think about it, like if you don't have a lot of existing representations, right, you can be learning things as much as you want and not worrying so much about disrupting mm -hmm. all of this other sort of stored knowledge, right? Whereas as an adult, you also have to think about the fact that you have all this stored knowledge and how do you incorporate new information in a way that doesn't mm -hmm. disrupt the existing representations. And so there are really interesting computational models that look at the balance, like like, why do we have a hippocampus and what, what is its role? And, you know, why is memory and learning so dependent on the hippocampus? But then how come when you lop out the hippocampus, which no one does with impunity, but like, say you have damage to the hippocampus, why is it that you still have memories for things past, right? And what does that tell us about how representations and memories are instantiated in the human brain? you know, why are kids so much more malleable to brain injury in a lot of ways than adults? And, and it may be because the more information you accumulate over time, the more you have to have a system that allows you to both learn new things, but incorporate them with kind of, mm -hmm. you know, cortical representations in a way that doesn't cause catastrophic interference, right? Which is mm -hmm. something that's going to get increasingly worse later in life, right, as you have more knowledge that you have to, you know, worry about how do you sort of incorporate these new things with the existing representations. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so when when you're a child, you're not a blank slate, but you're more of a blank slate. And so there's, you can freely add these new components in without having to worry so much about how they connect up with one another and then later yeah. on in life. And I guess connections increase exponentially, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, when you think about it. Yeah, it gets pretty. Yeah. So, but but actually, so you mentioned uh, damage uh, to brains of children. If if a child does damage some region of the brain which is responsible for X, Y, or Z, I'm not sure, and some other brain region then overtakes that functioning, is there? 
can 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 you now look at that region and see a morphology change or a, a changes in the connection which make that new region look like what the old region would have been like? Does that well, actually it's certainly add a function? Yeah. So actually, um, one of my colleagues here at WashU, Nico Dosenbach, who's a child neurologist, just published a really fascinating paper about a child who, unbeknownst to anybody until he was an adolescent, had uh, I think it was a really terrible stroke and basically was had a non-functional hemisphere um, and did just fine, didn't come to the attention to neurologists until um, I believe he was playing a sport and um, they noticed that he was having some difficulties with some motor function and they did scanning and found that this child was like basically, I, it wasn't quite half their brain, but close. And that the other brain had basically sort of taken over connections and functions, um, allowing him to really develop pretty normatively. And they show, they have, um, data in this paper kind of showing sort of the reconfiguration of the connections in that mm. intact, you know, cortex, because it, I believe it was a stroke that they had like a perinatal stroke um, and showing how it changed things. Right. He's also done, like, if you want a fascinating person to talk to, you should talk to Nico because he's also done this really interesting study where uh, they had three people who casted themselves they were all right-hand dominant and they casted their right arm for a long chunk of time. It was variable how many weeks. The first one was shorter and the other ones were longer. So that they immobilized their arm and they tracked their brain structure and connectivity over time to look at how it changed as a function of immobilization to show like how, you know, you both like white matter changes, they don't see as much evidence for white matter changes, but they definitely saw evidence for functional connectivity changes as a function of casting. And it was, it's very fascinating. You know, it's, it's hard to do this work in humans. There's been a lot of this work in animals, but um, he's doing some really fascinating stuff showing how like, you know, you, how the brain sort of compensates and changes as a function of these kinds of uh, impacts. Wow. Can you, at a, at a population level or at a statistical level, if, if I somehow gave you access to some brains, uh, alive or otherwise, could you, um, with, with the imaging techniques that you have, would you be able to distinguish between, um, you know, people of different ages, of different races, of different sexes? How, how? So same thing, not at the level of, um, I mean, for most things, certainly, sex, race, all of that, like there's, there's not going to be anything at the individual level that you're going to be able to say they're this or that, right? Many, many, many more similarities and differences. Age, um, you could make probably statistical probability. There are just normative changes that happen to our brain as we age. Uh, as someone who has had my brain scanned for many years, <laughs> I can see the difference in my brain now than when I was 25. It's getting um, better, and, right? Uh, well, it's certainly not getting bigger. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can anyway, wait. Can you actually see it shrinking? Or oh yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, will you get nor? It's just a normal thing. I mean, there's individual di with this. So this is why I always caveat because there's so much individual difference, right? I humans are fascinating because there's so much that's similar and so much that's different, right? And so 
you know, me looking at my brain over time, right? I, I can see, I, you know, I'm now 50 something, right? And a normal thing that happens to most people as they get age older, whether they show cognitive decline or not, is that you get some shrinkage, you get what's called social widening. It's just normal. It's just mm -hmm. it's what happens. And, and, you know, if I show you the brain of an 80 year old versus the brain of a, a 10 year old, right? You know, most people who are expert at looking at brains are going to be like that person's older than that person, right? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be able to say that person's 80? No, right? Because there's so much individual difference. You know, some 50 year olds look like 40 year olds, some 50 year olds look like other 60 year olds, right? There's a lot of variability. There's population level changes that we know are very sort of typical but there's so much variability around that, that right now we're not able to really use it in sort of a, I'll call it a diagnostic fashion. I mean, you can use brain imaging to diagnose lots of things like tumors and MS and these things, but you can't, you know, really use it to say this person's 80 versus 70 versus 60, or this person's a musician versus a mathematician. Um, you know, there are other techniques. I mean, I will say there's, a technique called PET imaging, positron emission tomography, mm -hmm. that lets you look at uh, that that people are certainly using uh, to try to predict risk for like dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and there's some utility there. Um, but that's like they're imaging like particular um, elements in the brain that are known to be associated with Alzheimer's disease, right? You you know everything else is is sort of a probability I could, you know, I might be able to predict with, you know, 60% accuracy, but that's not enough for us to be able mm -hmm. to say we can use, you know, the techniques I use to like diagnose, say someone is going to have depression or not, or they are going to have anxiety or not. Mm. Okay, so maybe this is a good point to jump into some of your research more specifically. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, so, you know, what impact does I guess I'm more. I am interested in how our upbringings uh, affect the structure of our brains and and how how that compares with our, you know, genetic makeup. But um, so so what impact does stress, nutrition, poverty? I mean, these are a lot of different uh, factors have on our success or or I guess even criminal criminality later on in life. Right. So um, before I talk about this, I'll add a caveat, which is. Um, this is another area where there are huge individual differences. And um, I don't ever want to give the impression that, say, growing up in poverty is um, immutably related to poor outcomes later in life, right? There are lots of people who grow up in adverse environments who do extremely well. Um, it's often because they've had some sort of support or buffer that's helped them. Um, uh, but but I, you know, one concern, uh, I'm part of a consortium called the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study, where we're studying brain development over time. And one of the things we've been trying to think a lot about is like responsible use of data and inferences. And one of the things that we really don't want to do is lead to the impression that like, you know, growing up in poverty means that you can never be successful, right? Or that every child who grows up in poverty is going to have mental health problems. Or I mean, That's not at all true. There's as much variability there. But, but again, we know on average that early adversity of all types is not good for brain development, right? Um, 
And, you know, there's been probably the most research, the most consistent evidence about the impacts of like early poverty on uh, the uh, growth of the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. um, and there, and it makes a lot of sense why that's an area of a lot of consistency because um, the hippocampus is uh, an important site of glucocorticoid receptors, which is part of the loop that helps regulate our stress response. So we have something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is part of the human body's response to stress. And so when we encounter stressful situations, the HPA axis gets activated. And one of the things it does is support, secrete cortisol and cortisol in the short term can have a lot of beneficial effects, right? It helps mobilize sort of fight or flight responses. It kind of helps the body prepare to deal with stressors. Um, the body has a natural negative feedback loop to try to um, time limit the response of the HPA axis. So you secrete cortisol, cortisol then binds to glucocorticoid receptors, which in turn help shut off it's part of a system that helps kind of shut off the HPA axis. Um, but um, it can be toxic if mm -hmm. in sort of too high of levels or over too long of a time. Um, and so early exposure to kind of chronic stress, whether that be in the form of poverty or other things, can end up changing the morphology of the hippocampus and gene expression in the hippocampus in part because of this activation of the HPA axis. Hmm. And I can say that more strongly than I can say about other things because of the animal models that have done like experimental manipulations and shown this to be true, right? Um, the animal models also suggest changes in the kind of structure and function of the amygdala that haven't been quite as clearly replicated in the human data. But the hippocampal data, like pretty much everybody who studies the hippocampus in relationship to early adversity, stress, trauma, those kinds of things, tends to see uh, evidence for um, reduced volume, kind of reduced mm -hmm. growth of the hippocampus in kids who are uh, exposed to chronic adversity and poverty. And that, you know, I think ends up then if you think about, well, what kinds of impacts does that have on, you know, behavior, you know, the hippocampus is important for so many things, right? Like it's important for helping with stress regulation and emotion regulation. So if you have, you know, impairments to the hippocampus, that is going to change stress responsivity throughout the course of life. It's important for memory and cognitive functioning. So it's going to have an impact on, you know, memory and cognitive function. There's a lot of data suggesting that you know, uh, disruptions to hippocampal structure and function may be risk factors for depression, partly because of stress responsivity and emotion responsivity. So, you know, we have a lot of evidence that that is one pathway by which early adversity can have an impact on children. Um, you know, there's going to be variation in how much children are impacted in that way as a function of probably a lot of things, right? So we have shown that um, caregiver nurturance can be a really powerful protective factor. Um, mm -hmm. We have mostly studied mothers out of not to say that fathers aren't important. It's just that the samples we've had have mostly been mothers. So we have a lot of data about maternal nurturance being important, and that's true in the animal models as well. I'm guessing paternal nurturance is just as important. We just haven't studied that as much. 
Um, you know, it, it certainly can be the case that there's lots of things that can buffer children's stress, right? You know, mm -hmm. again, whether it's family support, whether it's, you know, extended family community supports, right? So I don't want to imply that all children growing up, you know, in low SES are all going to have disrupted structure and function in the hippocampus and all going to have negative outcomes. But on average, it is a greater risk. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I find this to be particularly important because it's actionable. We could do something about this as a society if we chose to, right? Mm -hmm. And and some societies have done a lot better at this than others. Um, and I would not say that the U.S. has done nearly enough, <laughs> given how much evidence there is that it's, you know, that there are environmental impacts on kids um, that are causal. And I emphasize this, we have very clear data that these things are causal. We have animal models showing that you can causally manipulate them. We have experiments of nature where communities have changed and the uh, socioeconomic status of the community as a whole has improved and kids function has improved. Um, you know, we have interventions that people have done to show that kids you know, development can be improved. Um, and I emphasize that because sometimes you get naysayers who are like, oh, it's not really the environment. It's parents have bad genes and they pass on bad genes to their kids. And it, you're really seeing the effects of genetics. Mm -hmm. There's no causal role of the environment. Mm -hmm. And I say, I'm not denying that there are genetic contributions at all, but I, I am arguing that there's very clear evidence that there are causal effects of the environment mm -hmm. and choosing not to intervene is a, to me, an ethical choice, right? Like that we should be doing things because the more kids can be shifted onto healthy developmental trajectories and have an opportunity to live and learn, you know, in a supportive and stress-free environment, the better their outcomes are going to be. So, so cortisol acts in some sense as a poison, which uh, can damp is toxic to the brain. It can, it can, in excessive amounts. Okay, but and and so is is that does that also occur later on in life, or is that just during development? No, it can happen later in life too. There are certainly, I mean, chronic stress is never good for you, <laughs> and there's mm -hmm. certainly um, evidence consistent with that in the depression literature that chronic stress. You know, so if you look at like PTSD and other things, right, there's a, a, a evidence that, you know, exposure to extreme stress, presumably in ways that would activate the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and, and uh, lead to excessive cortisol secretion can be bad for you. Um, it gets a little bit complicated later in life because there's also some evidence that early exposure to chronic stress can basically sort of over time shut off activation of the HPA mm -hmm. axis. So in some cases, when you look at populations that have been exposed to really severe deprivation or trauma early in life, it's not that you continue to see sort of hyperactivation of the HPA axis, you almost see like a dampening of cortisol secretion. And some people have argued that that's like a kind of a burnout effect, right? That after so mm -hmm. much prolonged exposure to stress, the system just can't mount a response anymore because in some ways that may be adaptive in some environments, right? Like if you are chronically exposed to stress and activation of the HPA axis can have a negative impact, like you can imagine organismically that that's adaptive to stop activating the system mm -hmm. to an uncontrollable stressor, for example, right? Like if, it's, if it doesn't help you 
then maybe it's it's adaptive for the system to sort of downregulate. So in terms of uh, outcomes, if you have a population uh, which is highly stressed because, you know, there's violence in the region or there's poverty or whatever is causing the stress, what sort of outcome does that have on a population level in terms of, uh, maybe you can't say, but in terms of uh, emotions, for example, does that um, does that create a population where people are more ready to anger or does that increase violence levels? Or what 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 is the outcome? I mean, I think that, you know, that I have seen personally more data about stress and anxiety and depression than I have about mm -hmm. anger and violence, right, in terms of early chronic adversity, um, you know, so, so I think, you know, I think we sometimes are quick to assume that like early chronic exposure to stress and, and violence might lead to anger and violence on the part of individuals. And I'm not saying that there's no data on that, but mm -hmm. I would say there's as much, if not more data on, you know, it leading to anxiety and depression later in life, mm -hmm. um, you know, on, on, and I would say again, on average, the risk is higher. It's not going to be true for every individual, right? Because again, it's it's a complex interplay of what kinds of buffering factors might individual children have that might, you know, protect them from some of the effects or support them later in life. So not every child who grows up in extreme poverty is going to have depression or anxiety or challenges with cognitive function or, or life function later in life. But um, on average, the risk that they will is going to be higher than a child who grows up, you know, in an affluent neighborhood, you know, not having to deal with, you know, stressors or having other kinds of supports. It's interesting uh, that you say one of the key sort of outcomes is related to stress and anxiety because we medicate people for stress and anxiety. I mean, so there's sort of chemical solutions, let's say. And so how does that you know, from the story you're telling me, there's sort of these uh, connection changes that occur due to uh, the toxicity of cortisol. And maybe a solution to that later on in life is to the administration of, um, you know, um, uh, medications. If, if, the, if the problem is structural, why does the medication work? And secondly, can medication also have an impact on, on brain morphology if it's taken early on? Um, I, so I don't know the answer to whether medication will have an effect on brain morphology. I haven't seen studies in humans about that, so I don't know. Um, I would say that um, the changes that are occurring, like in the example I gave, are both structural and functional, right? In the sense that, um, you know, they, in, in, in the human, we can sort of measure the shape and size of the hippocampus. But in animal models, you can also be looking at like the number of synapses, changes in the distribution of receptors. All of those things are also being changed uh, in response to exposure to kind of chronic increased cortisol levels. Um, uh, and I think of those as functional as well, because they're going to be changing like sort of the neurotransmitter milieu and the, you know, the functional connections among brain regions. And so to the extent that later in life, you take a medication that also has an impact on those neurotransmitter systems, right? That can, could alleviate depression or anxiety. Um, I will also just always remind people that medications are very useful approach to helping to treat depression and anxiety. They are by no means the only approach, right? We have equally strong evidence for psychotherapeutic techniques that can be very effective for depression and anxiety. 
there's growing evidence about some of these stimulation techniques like transcranial magnetic stimulation that can also be very helpful for alleviating depression. So medications are like one very helpful tool, but they are not the only approach, you know, and some, in some cases, maybe not even the most effective approach for treating anxiety or depression later in life. And certainly in kids, we are extremely hesitant to do drugs in kids with early depression and anxiety because we just don't know enough about how that's gonna impact brain development. And so like in our work treating depression in preschoolers, all of our work is with psychotherapeutic techniques, like uh, not mm -hmm. with medication um, because, um, and, and in particular therapeutic techniques that sort of harness the power of the family in treatment of the child because kids are embedded in families and you can't really treat a kid in isolation. You need to kind of treat the family unit in order for that to be an effective approach going forward for little kids, for young kids. Mm -hmm. So can I ask on the other end? So if, if, for example, you were to, uh, I don't know if these studies have been done or not, but if you were to do studies where you imaged, uh, for example, vi violent criminals, um, and, and you had a large enough sample that you could compare to the, you know, the average member of society, are there noticeable differences there between someone who, and, and I suppose I mean someone who, uh, has, has some maybe premeditated violence as a, as opposed to, you know, right, lashing out. Right. Yeah. right. Um, so there has, there have been studies on this, um, and there's some really interesting, you know, if you are really interested in this topic, I could recommend some people to talk to because it's not my area of expertise. But mm -hmm. I think it's pretty much the same as I would say about the aging. Like if you take large groups of people who have say psychopathy versus not, on average, there are some differences across the two populations, right? But you can't image an individual and say, they're this individual, I can assure you is a psychopath, right? Um, and a lot of that work is focused on a region of the brain called the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is kind of right back in here. And it's an interesting area of the brain that is part of what we call our limbic system, which is a system involved in sort of emotions and responding to threats. Um, and it's got important connections to other brain structures like the amygdala. And there, there's, um, at least some evidence in the literature that there may be some alterations to the ventral medial prefrontal cortex amongst individuals who have what we would call psychopathy. There's some interesting data showing that damage to the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, so strokes, or there's even some older literature looking at kids who had brain damage, um, is associated with the emergence of behaviors that weren't there before that you might consider to be part of psychopathy, sort of like callousness, risk-taking behavior. It's not so much clear to me that it's criminality versus like, you know, not caring about the thoughts and feelings of others kind of thing. Um, but, but again, I'm pretty sure the evidence does not suggest that, you know, we could go into a jail, scan everybody and sort people into, is this person actually a psychopath or is this just a person who's a victim of circumstances kind of thing? I mean, it's sort of, it would point towards a dystopian future where we can sort people based on brain scans. 
And, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I'm just looking at the time and I realize you have to run away very soon. So yeah. let me just um, wrap up very quickly uh, with one final question. So in terms of the medical benefits of your research, so what, what are the, the positive outcomes uh, from, from the, uh, I suppose, specifically uh, the uh, research in, in, uh, in, in um, the Connectome project that you've been working on? Uh, but also uh, more broadly uh, with your work uh, with development in, in children? Yeah. Um, so you, you're maybe going to be surprised by my answer because it's not clear to me yet that there's any direct med medical benefit of the brain imaging work that I do in terms of like, um, I mean, I think it helps to identify potential pathways to treatment. You know, I think a lot of the neural systems that we've identified as seeming to be associated with emergence of depression and anxiety kind of point to domains of function that are amenable to treatment, like emotion regulation and cognitive control. So I think that's helpful in that regard. I would say that for me, increasingly, I believe that one of the most important things that's an outcome of my research is to make tangible the negative impacts of early adversity on children as a means to try to make arguments about the need to change it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think all too often we think we victim blame people who grow up in poverty and we say, oh, if they just worked harder, you know, and if mm -hmm. they just were more motivated and why can't they just, you know, do whatever. Um, and I don't want to take away anybody's agency, but I think it's important for people to realize that there are, there can be, right, impacts on brain development of early adversity that can make it very difficult for people mm -hmm. to do things later in life through no fault of their own. And it's not a, a will or a motivation issue. So, um, you know, I think that that is the kind of evidence that's needed to get, you know, sort of governments and lawmakers and people to kind of, you know, really recognize that we need to do something like we have the mm -hmm. ability to do something and we need to do something. And, and it's, again, it's not a case of will or motivation or personality or bad parenting, right? It, you know, it, there are real physical implications for mm -hmm. chronic exposure to stress. And so, if I can use that data to convince policy change, then I will be completely happy with my scientific career, even if it doesn't lead to a specific treatment. Uh, so, so basically, your work is making visible uh, these problems. So, for example, if, if you saw someone with a broken leg, you wouldn't complain that they're not running a marathon. Right, exactly. That's a great analogy. I love that. I'm going to steal it. <laughs> Well, I realize you have to run. So look, this has been really, really fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure. It was great to talk to you. Escaped Sapiens.